The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is Wednesday, April 12th, 2023, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to our lecture, Tactical Arrogance, British Military Disasters in the Wilderness, 1755 to 1777. We welcome listeners from all over the world on our live stream feed. For those of you listening live online, remember that you can submit a question for our QA at the end of the lecture by typing it into the chat room and we will include them in the discussion. My name is Alan Konechman, and I am the Supervisory Archivist uh, with the Academic Library Division here at USAHEC. Tonight, I have the honor of representing the whole USAHEC team by introducing this afternoon's program and speaker. Dr. David Preston is the General Mark W. Clark Distinguished Chair of History and the Director of the MA in Military History at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. Growing up in Western Pennsylvania instilled in him a passion for the French and Indian War era, and inevitably for the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> he went on to earn his doctorate in American history at the College of William and Mary. His second book, Braddock's Defeat, The Battle of the Monongahela and the Road to Revolution, was published by Oxford University Press in 2015 as part of the Distinguished Pivotal Moments in American History book series edited by David Hackett Fisher and James McPherson. It was the winner of the 2015 Gilder Lehrman Prize in Military History, was a finalist for the 2016 George Washington Book Prize, received the 2016 Distinguished Book Award from the Society for Military History, and was the winner of the 2016 Distinguished Book Award from the Society of Colonial Wars, and received the 2016 Prose Award in U.S. History from the Association of American Publishers. David most recently co-authored in 2021, The Other Face of Battle, America's Forgotten Wars and the Experience of Combat with Anthony E. Carlson and David Silby. Following Dr. Preston's remarks, he will be joined by a panel of two Carlisle Barracks-based military historians who will be discussing further defeats of the British Army in the American Wilderness, 1758 to 1777. With no further delay, please welcome Dr. Preston. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you. Well, very good evening to you all. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here, and I, I can't tell you how much um, I, I've been looking forward to this event, and particularly this collaboration with, um, with two very esteemed colleagues, Doug Cubison and Kevin Weddle. In 2018, I had the, the privilege of, of coming here to, to Carlisle as part of the, the Commandant's National Security Program and of subsequently attending a, a very good friend's uh, graduation from the Army War College. And the keynote speaker on that, that commencement was retired General Barry McCaffrey. And I was, I was thrilled to see this, this legendary commander of the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division, whose exploits in, in Operation Desert Storm were, were, were well known to me. From, from my reading. So here was an officer who had experienced incredible tactical and operational success. And yet his charge to the, the students that day 
to these officers was to beware of the danger of tactical arrogance. A phrase that he and others have used to describe the, the set of assumptions underwriting this belief that the United States will dominate in any future battlefield on which it shows up. And he proceeded to, to rattle off a list of, of historical examples. So he was, you know, he was he caught my attention there. And he, he mentioned some of the opening battles of World War II, of the, the Korean War, Vietnam, where the United States Army not only lost battles, but suffered catastrophic losses that put units out of action. Now, you know, I was on the edge of my seat, of course, waiting for General McCaffrey to mention, you know, at least Braddock's defeat or maybe St. Clair's defeat, which still ranks proportionately as the worst defeat the army has ever suffered. But alas, his omission is our opportunity here. <laughs> the history of these British expeditions in North America in the era of the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, I think are highly relevant to anyone studying modern war fighting. These expeditions and the, the overall operational environment of 18th century North America, I think these are, these are far more illuminating and far better approximations of the types of challenges that the United States has faced and potentially will face in current and future wars. And I think they're, they're, these, these expeditions are infinitely more complex than the, the type of set-piece battlefield we, we see just a, a little bit to our south at Gettysburg. Great Britain in the 18th century, on the one hand, had to be a master of, of conventional war. This was, to use our parlance, an age of great power competition primarily between Britain and, and France for global, global dominance. And so Britain needed that, that conventional capability. The British Army and Navy, I would submit, were, were the greatest practitioners of amphibious warfare in the 18th century. Those expeditions were known at the time as conjunct expeditions, carried on jointly by the fleet and the army. And that's a, that's a contemporary definition from a, a writer named Colonel Thomas Moore Molyneux from his, his book on the same title, Conjunct Expeditions. And these, in, in a colonial context, these conjunct expeditions often led the British army into situations where they had to confront small wars or what they referred to in the 18th century as petite guerre what we refer to today, today as, as unconventional war or irregular war. Today, we're going to be closely examining three British disasters in the wilderness of North America. Those of Major General Edward Braddock in 1755, Major James Grant in 1758 in the context of John Forbes's expedition, and then Major General John Burgoyne's in 1777. Each of these ventures came to naught in the wilderness of North America. All three of these British forces assumed a kind of tactical arrogance that 
they were more than a match for any of their opponents. All three of these forces would experience what myself and my co-authors referred to in our book as the other face of battle. Battling in unexpected places with unfamiliar and often unnerving opponents that they were ultimately unprepared to fight. So this is our arena here. All three of these British armies were largely composed of conventional forces and commanded by officers who displayed tactical arrogance. Or if you, if you want a contemporary description of, of tactical arrogance, I'm going to quote you Benjamin Franklin here. The most sovereign contempt is what he said. Contempt for irregulars that they, they would face. It's very interesting to me that Braddock, Grant, and Forbes were supremely confident in the discipline, the professionalism, the firepower of their, their British Army regulars. And each of these generals used the term rabble for their enemies, whether they be Native American warriors, French-Canadian irregulars, or rebel Americans. These... Um, Three officers would suffer catastrophic tactical defeats at the hands of opponents that proved to be anything but rabble. Opponents that actually had, I think, in some cases, greater discipline, greater effectiveness and firepower than the British regulars themselves. These defeats also produced varying degrees of, of strategic disaster as well for the, for the British. Now, having studied Braddock's defeat for so long, I kind of, you know, yes, I'm a military historian, but let's face it, Braddock's defeat is more of like a disaster history. <laughs> you, you know what's coming, like the spoiler is right there on the, the title, and yet everybody, everybody reads it, right? <laughs> so um, Braddock's defeat is kind of like, you know, akin to a book about the Titanic, in, in a sense. But I, I'm personally drawn to these types of moments because I'm, I, I like to see what, what happens to people and generals and officers and soldiers when everything that could possibly go, go wrong goes wrong. And I like to see what types of assumptions are being made going into these, these disasters. Tactical arrogance is something that, that, that blinded these British officers to the strengths of their opponents. And that's, that's really the flip side of, of this. You know, for me, it was important to not only explain why Braddock lost, but also why the French and Native Americans were so superior, why, why they won. Tactical arrogance is also something that, that blinded Braddock and his contemporaries to the strengths even of their own allies. And I'm speaking here about the provincial American soldiers who were part of these, these British armies. So one of the running themes that I wanna to emphasize tonight is um, this, this kind of emerging American provincial identity 
that we see forming, especially in the time of the, of the French and Indian War. And, and this is a, a kind of military identity that, that is shaped, yes, by these very defeats that we're talking about. Many colonists were awakened, at, as George Washington put it, to a sense of, quote, being Americans. That's a phrase he uses in 1757 as they campaigned with British regulars who often denigrated them, not only because of their allegedly poor military skills, but also because of their provincial status. Now, I think one of the, the fundamental challenges that these different British was the North American environment itself and British leaders' overall ignorance of it. A lot of these expeditions were sabotaged, in a sense, by the British ministry's operational planning that was based upon flawed understanding, if not outright ignorance, of the actual environment of North America. Here's an example. Prior to the 1750s, the British had never been able to project military power far inland on the North American continent. The expeditions in the 1600s into the early 1700s were pretty much relegated to the navigable Atlantic coastline, maybe, maybe a little bit of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the, the St. Lawrence River itself. Whenever the, the English had attempted an overland expedition from, say, New York, using the Lake Champlain-Hudson Corridor to try to attack Canada, every single one of those overland expeditions collapsed from logistical failure. None of them really ever even got off the ground. And so the, the advantage was with the Native Americans and the French Canadians, who enjoyed far greater strategic mobility with simple birch bark canoes, bateaus, and dugout canoes, with great economy of force. Small numbers of, of Native warriors and French Canadian allies paralyzed the British colonies through devastating raids and attacks that destroyed the colonists' resources and depopulated a lot of these frontier areas. That is why, in, in my study of Braddock's expedition, I emphasized that this was something new under the sun. Braddock's effort to capture Fort Duquesne 300 miles from his starting point in Alexandria, Virginia, symbolized a new and decisive continental reach that the British were developing. Now, Braddock's operational plan was essentially a coup de main, or coup de main. This is a French term. It, it, it more or less means a kind of lightning strike. If you want a contemporary definition, Here's one from George Smith, the inspector of the Royal Military Academy. He said, the very name of an expedition implies risk, hazard, precarious warfare, and a critical operation. 
for Braddock's own coup domain, he would essentially be trading logistical security of his supply lines and communications for speed. He was racing through the American wilderness to Fort Duquesne. Braddock's engineers carved a roughly 10-foot wide military road through unimproved country, the Appalachian Mountains, some of the most rugged and densely forested and forbidding terrain. So for all these reasons, and, and contrary to, to so much of our, um, our mythology, Braddock was by no means bogged down with, with heavy baggage like, like a, a contemporary European army would be. Um, in fact, this is a point that pains me, okay? So allow me to just develop this for a second. Um, Braddock, in his final advance on Fort Duquesne, he's carrying 10 artillery pieces, 10, with a few handheld mortars. 10 artillery pieces, that's enough to do the job to, to capture Fort Duquesne and besiege it if he, if he has to. By contrast, in 1777, General John Burgoyne's army coming down from Canada is burdened in its advance by nearly 40 guns of, of even heavier caliber and weight than the type that, um, that Braddock is carrying. And so I emphasize that Braddock achieved one of the most rapid and successful marches in American military history. And he was set to invest Fort Duquesne right on schedule in July of 1755. You know, Braddock achieved the very thing that his opponents, the French, said was impossible, that, that there's no way the British can transport artillery across the Appalachian Mountains. Now, we know the rest of the story here, and I, I, don't, I don't need to go into um, the, the, the whole history of the Battle of the Monongahela of July 9, 1755. Needless to say, French, Canadian, Irregulars, and Native American warriors, led by veteran officers, demonstrated once again why they were the true masters of war in the wilderness of North America. Now, while, while one may suffer a tactical loss and, and recover, the combination of a, a tactical defeat plus some type of logistical dysfunction, that's almost certainly going to be fatal. And such was Braddock's unfortunate case. On the day of the battle, his, his nearest fallback point was over 55 miles to the southeast. And on the battlefield, he had lost all of his pack horses and wagons and the, the roaming cattle herds that he was carrying with him to sustain his force for that siege. The consequences of the Battle of Monongahela resulted, not surprisingly, in strategic disaster for the British in North America, so much so that the French and the natives were really dominant in North America for really the next three years. The only silver lining for the British was the behavior of George Washington. And the Virginia provincials, who 
conducted a robust rear guard action, fighting from behind trees and buying enough time for these panic-stricken British regulars to escape back across the Monongahela River. The final installment of my remarks today will focus on General John Forbes' expedition in 1758 and this action that is fought during this campaign called Grant's Defeat. This was essentially a repetition, right, to uh, accomplish what Braddock did not three years earlier. Over the course of the war, the British Army did adapt to the lessons that it had learned in 1755. And over the course of the war, the British do develop an ability to strike deep into the continent of North America and, and, and counteracting some of the advantages that have often accrued to the French and the Indians. For example, the supply shortfalls that Braddock had experienced were corrected by future British commanders. Under um, the, the tenure of the next commander-in-chief, Lord Loudon. Loudon was the one who basically created a logistical foundation that would support over 40,000 British and American troops advancing at different points against French Canada. So Loudon pioneered the construction of bateaux, military roads. He's building forts and storehouses everywhere. And this is what enables the British, to, indeed, to project and sustain military force. So the way that I like to say it is that the things that had been Im literally impossible to English arms prior to the 1750s suddenly become possible during the decade of the, of basically seven, late 1750s, early 1760s. Um, my colleague Doug here has written a great book about the, the final British expedition of the war in which there are three British armies synchronized in, in, the, in their final attack on Montreal in 1760. John Forbes is the perfect symbol of the British Army's adaptations. Forbes, I think, I mean, he ranks in my mind as, as one of the, the finest commanders of the French and Indian War. If it was up to me, I, I would take Army War College students on a staff ride of Forbes' expedition before I would go down to Gettysburg. And maybe I'll convince you of that, that point here in a second. That's a hard, that's a hard sell, admittedly. <laughs> so Forbes led an expedition of around 7,000 British, American, and Indian forces that corrected in nearly every respect the challenges or errors that the British had committed during Braddock's expedition three years earlier. Forbes was as much a diplomat as a general, and he fundamentally understood the, the tribal environment that he was entering. He was not one of these imperious British officers, but he was more of like a coalition commander. That, that force of 7,000 included Highlanders, British regulars, provincial Americans drawn from five different colonies, 
and, and a number of, of, um, of tribal allies. He had the same challenges as, as Braddock did. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Bouquet, who was Forbes' most trusted lieutenant, underscored that, here's his quote, the obstacles which he, Forbes, had to surmount were immense. 200 miles of wild and unknown country to cross, obliged to open a road through the woods, mountains, and swamps, to build forts along our lines of march for the security of our convoys with an active and enterprising enemy in front of us. And the British eventually constructed Forbes's road, a new military road right across Pennsylvania all the way to the forks of the Ohio. You know, th this is, this is uh, something that connects here to, to Carlisle as well. Forbes came right through Carlisle. The key to Forbes' strategy was what he called a protected advance, a network of fortifications and supply bases, including Carlisle, to anchor his lines of communication and supply, going all the, real, all the way back to Philadelphia. And then by extension, these bases will anchor the British presence in the Ohio Valley once he gets there. Above all, as Forbes put it in his pithy way, Although I advance but gradually, yet I shall go more surely. This was a long and grinding campaign. It doesn't have the drama of Braddock's defeat. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's a logistical slog. It takes time to build all these forts and, and roads and stockpile supplies. Above all, Forbes was not tactically arrogant. He avoided risky ventures. And I think that what he says in this statement I'm about to read is, is a pretty rare admission for an 18th century British regular officer, a career officer. He said, in this country, we must learn the art of war from enemy Indians. Now, I think that that's remarkable in two respects. Number one, that he thinks the, the enemy Indians actually have an art of war. And that number two, that he has to learn it as a, as a, as a, as a regular officer. And Forbes did, and his subordinates uh, attempt to train their men in some of the light infantry tactics that were starting to, to come to the fore in the British Army. The British Army had also stood up um, ranger companies as, as a means of, of, of uh, combating the supremacy of, of Native Americans and French Canadians in the woods. Um, my friend Jack uh, Giblin here um, worked at, at a place called Bushy Run where Henry Bouquet would, would demonstrate in 1765 just how fully the British army adapted to fighting in the woods. And Bouquet and his men will, will achieve a, an open forest victory <laughs> over the, uh, the, the Native Americans who are battling them. So by late, uh, one more thing here. 
very timely. I, I saw this, this picture in the news, and um, this, is, this is exactly what Braddock and Forbes were doing in the 1750s as they were advancing across the Appalachian Mountains. Whenever they got to boggy or swampy areas, they had to build corduroy roads. And so here in Ukraine, the Russians are doing the same thing. And I, uh, I, just, I just love that. <clears throat> so by late 1758, advanced units of Forbes' army had taken a post at a place called Loyal Hannah. On the map here, that's, that's marked as, as Fort Ligonier. This would be the army's forward base. They were now only about 50 miles from Fort Duquesne. The closer that the British got to Fort Duquesne, however, their target, the greater the temptation to do something, especially for an officer like Major James Grant of Ballandalloch, one of the Highland officers who was in Forbes' army, who Forbes said had, quote, a thirst of fame. Despite his utter lack of experience in fighting in the woods or North American campaigning altogether, Grant pressed his commanders for an independent command to do something against Fort Duquesne. Henry Bouquet, who was essentially like Forbes's executive officer, his second in command, the operational commander at Loyal Hannah, unwisely relented and gave Grant that independent command, although with some important guardrails. So in September 1758, Grant leads a, a picked force largely composed of British regulars and Scottish Highlanders, but also with an assortment of American provincials, mainly from Virginia and here in, in Pennsylvania. Few Indians, allies as well, believe it or not. But Grant is essentially taking Forbes's army backward three years in what he's doing. He violated his orders for a reconnaissance and force and eventually, essentially reverted back to the kind of coup de main that Braddock had attempted in 1755. Now, amazingly, Grant's army, his little force of about 860 men, they achieve tactical surprise. They show up the gates of Fort Duquesne undetected and they take up position on this high hill overlooking Fort Duquesne on the night of September 13, 1758. That hill is pictured here on this contemporary map. This was drawn by a, a Virginia provincial officer who reconnoitered Fort Duquesne and its environs in 1758. Now, you're in for a treat here. Recently, um, I, I came across this, this journal that was recently acquired by the American Revolution Institute in Washington, DC. 
One of the British officers in, in Grant's force was Lieutenant Rudolf Bentink. He was a Dutch-born individual who commissioned into the British Army in 1756. This journal constitutes a, a, a wonderful eyewitness account of Forbes's expedition, and especially of what happened to Grant's force in 1758. He accompanied Grant's force. It's a great description, of, again, of what, what it meant to encounter the other face of battle in the form of French, Canadian, and Indian irregulars. Instead of a reconnaissance, Grant deliberately sought to provoke the French and Indian forces at Fort Duquesne. The best way to, to describe Grant's tactics and his whole operation is, is imagine a group of boys with a stick, each of them armed with a stick, trying to poke a big hornet's nest to see what's going to happen. Ben Tink was unluckily part of the single company, about 100, 100 men, who was sent down off of the hill to, to, to advance literally right up to the gates of Fort Duquesne to see what was going to happen. So I'm going to read a, a, a section of this wonderful new source on Grant's defeat that um, happily has been digitized for the benefit of us all. You can go to the American Revolution Institute's website and read it for yourself. It's, it's a wonderful 18th century account by a British officer. Here's what he says. Major Grant, convinced that we were discovered, supposed the enemy was afraid to come out. <laughs> Full stop, okay? That is, is an incredible assumption there on the part of Grant. The enemy is afraid to come out and meet him. And therefore ordered Captain MacDonald, he's one of the, un, the, the, the Highlanders, with a hundred men to march down to the edge of the woods with his drums beating and bagpipes playing in order to draw them out to an engagement, if possible. The engineer, Mr. Rohr, and myself went with this party, but we had hardly marched a thousand yards when 1,500 French and Indians sallied out upon us with horrid howling like wild beasts, as we had no reason to imagine that they could send out any considerable number against us. We formed 100 men upon the start of the hill to receive the enemy, whom we could not see as yet through the thickness of the underwood. However, they soon appeared and began to fire at a great distance. When they came within 80 yards, Captain MacDonald ordered his men to give them a volley, upon which they all disappeared. And we supposed them to be gone from whence they came. But instead of that, they crept on all fours till they had almost surrounded us, where all at once we received a very hot fire without seeing an enemy. In a few minutes, all the officers and above half the men were killed or wounded, upon which the remainder retreated in the greatest confusion toward Major Grant, who, no sooner observing that we were worsted, marched to our assistance, 
he was attacked on his march when our men, not being at this time much acquainted with the Indian way of fighting and too brave to skulk behind trees, were soon forced to retreat, numbers of officers and men being killed without hardly seeing an enemy. Panic and confusion soon ensued when the only thing left us was to retreat in the best order we could. So to close, this combination of tactical arrogance and poor intelligence resulted in the British leaders woefully underestimating the size and the potency of the French and Indian forces around Fort Duquesne. Unbeknownst to the French, to the British, the French had used their strategic mobility to mobilize a pretty large force. In fact, a French Marine officer named Captain Charles-Philippe de Aubry led a large convoy of French militia all the way from the Illinois country, a journey of over 1,200 miles. And Aubry's force arrives, according to one French source, the day before Grant does. In the end, this was not Grant's defeat, but a testament to the greater skill and discipline of the French and Indians, who, though surprised, immediately counterattacked, outflanked their opponent, and nearly destroyed Grant's entire command. An astonishing 48% of Grant's force would be killed or captured. And I think that this number is actually higher because the, the numbers of the wounded seem so small to me. Only 40 wounded appear on the British Army returns. As in 1755, it was yet another rear guard action by the Virginia Provincials that staved off disaster. For a second time, the Virginians had saved the British regulars. But in the aftermath, Major Grant heaped blame upon the commander of the Virginia Provincials, Major Andrew Lewis, for allegedly botching his, his well-planned out attack against the hornet's nest. So one of the interesting things here about Grant's defeat is that even though Forbes had suffered a loss almost on the same scale as Braddock, it did not lead to strategic disaster for the British. So here we may, we may comprehend some important lessons about how a general absorbs a defeat and keeps going. John Forbes' protected advance did, his, did its job. It provided a place for Grant's men to fall back where they were sustained by supplies and fresh infusions of troops, including George Washington and the rest of his, his Virginia regiment. Forbes himself did not lose heart or lose nerve. He didn't abandon the campaign. He didn't abandon Fort Ligonier. And although he didn't know it, Grant's defeat had been a kind of blessing in disguise in the sense that a lot of the victorious Native Americans immediately went home after this decisive drubbing of the British foe. And they're laden down with captured material and scalps and prisoners, 
And Forbes also continued to use the diplomatic instrument of power. All this time, he's been negotiating with the native nations that are immediately around Fort Duquesne. And by October of 1758, that diplomatic effort has been successful in, and it leads to those native nations basically declaring neutrality and withdrawing themselves from the war. So that when Forbes makes his final advance on Fort Duquesne, he captures the French outpost without a fight in November of 1758. In the following year, the French would abandon the Ohio country altogether. Now, let me close here by briefly talking about how it was that the British army that had adapted successfully to the North American environment, both, both logistically and, and tactically in, in their forces, how it was that they proceeded to unlearn much of what they had learned through so many hard lessons and experiences. First, the logistical framework that had underwritten British victory in the Seven Years' War, that had collapsed by 1775 when the American Revolution broke out. Forts had been abandoned. Storehouses had rotted. Moreover, the 13 colonies, the, the British had lost the colonies as an economic and material base. And the colonies were essentially hostile country now. The British army itself also jettisoned a lot of its hard-learned lessons and experience. And they, they didn't really preserve as much as they, they could have an institutional memory of, of how to fight in North America. So in the, in the American Revolution, they have to learn these things again and again. Now, where I want to close tonight is um, with James Grant. He to be in the British Army. He's a member of Parliament when the American Revolution breaks out, and he, uh, it's a very infamous speech that he, he gives to the House of Commons in February of 1775. And he basically um, excoriates the, um, the American colonists. He, he advocates crushing the rebellion with, with uh, force. And he boasts in this speech that he could, if, if given 5,000 regulars, march from one end of America to another with ease. Benjamin Franklin, who happened to be living in London at the time, found this very irresistible. <laughs> and in a newspaper article, Franklin pilloried Grant for his speech. Here I close. Sir, I am at a loss to conceive upon what facts the gentleman grounds his impeachment of American courage. Is it from their having covered the retreat of the British regulars and saved them from utter destruction in the expeditions under Braddock and to Fort Pitt. Thank you. Thank you, David. Dr. Preston will be joined for a roundtable panel discussion by Dr. Kevin Weddle and Mr. Douglas R. Cubison. 
Dr. Weddle is a professor of military theory and strategy and the Elihu Root Chair of Military Studies at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. Weddle graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and retired from the U.S. Army as a colonel. He received his Ph.D. from Princeton University. His most recent book, The Complete Victory, Saratoga and the American Revolution, was published by the Oxford University Press in 2021. It received the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History and the Society of the Cincinnati Prize, which recognizes the author of the outstanding book of that year, which advances understanding of the American Revolution and its legacy. Mr. Cuppison is the former Cultural Resources Manager of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and the former Command Historian of the 10th Mountain Division in Fort Drum. He has published 11 professional military histories and one historic novel, including The British Defeat of the French in Pennsylvania, 1758, a military history of the Forbes campaign against Fort Duquesne, and On Campaign Against Fort Duquesne, the Braddock and Forbes Expedition, 1775 to 1778 through the experiences of Quartermaster Sir John St. Clair. He is currently a curator with the USA HEC. He and David grew up within seven miles of each other and served together on the board of directors for the Braddock Road Preservation Association. Now we have about 30 minutes for our panel discussion. Mr. Cubison will speak first on Grant's defeat during the Forbes campaign of 1758. All right, well, I'm gonna speak uh, fairly briefly here. Uh, David did a great job introducing uh, Grant's defeat. But what would, I'd like to do is to compare and contrast uh, the results of these two great defeats in Western Pennsylvania, uh, Braddock's defeat and, and Grant's defeat. Uh, the result of uh, Braddock's crushing blow at, uh, at uh, the Monongahela is that uh, the column, what's left of it, retreats to uh, Rockfort Camp, modern Jamonville uh, on Chestnut Ridge. And very quickly, the surviving senior member uh, of the expedition, uh, John Dunbar, Colonel Dunbar for the 48th Regiment, uh, blows up, destroys all of the ordnance uh, material at the post and retreats precipitously uh, back across the mountains, across the road that they had spent so much time uh, constructing, flees back to Fort Cumberland. Uh, he doesn't stop there. Uh, he flees back all the way to the eastern seaboard, uh, even though it's only August, uh, still lots of good campaign weather. Uh, Dunbar is completely uh, demoralized by the defeat of Braddock. Uh, one of the uh, challenges of uh, tactical arrogance is it breeds a huge amount of supreme overconfidence. And when that overconfidence is broken, uh, Psychologically, it's, it's crushing. And Dunbar cannot recover from the defeat of, of Braddock. And he pulls back, uh, and in doing so, he basically exposes the Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia frontiers to Indian raids, uh, well, essentially all of the rest of 1755, 56, and 57. Uh, the frontier actually retracts all the way back to, well, right here in Carlisle. Uh, this becomes the frontier in 1758. Uh, everybody retreats this far, They're driven, the, the frontier is driven this far back east. Uh, has a huge effect on obviously uh, many uh, citizens of Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland, families. Uh, it's a crushing blow, uh, great economic loss. Uh, 
very, you know, very embarrassing and humiliating to, to British arms. Uh, 1758, uh, James Grant tries his great uh, assault upon Fort Duquesne at dawn. Uh, apparently, uh, one of the lessons learned of that is that Indians do not like to be woken up <laughs> by bagpipes. Uh, I can understand that. Uh, so apparently, uh, Who does? yeah, apparently uh, you do not use bagpipes to wake up Indians. It makes them really angry. Uh, they launch an overwhelming attack on, on, on Grant. Uh, and, and, you know, something basically different happens to him than Braddock. Uh, what happens to Grant is he has his troops badly dispersed. Uh, they cannot concentrate their firepower. Uh, just about everybody's flanks are exposed. Flanks are easily turned. Uh, individual units are easily surrounded and easily dispatched by the Indians, literally one at a time. Uh, the defeat and magnitude, as David said, uh, Braddock probably took about 1,300 men uh, to, uh, to Turtle Creek. Uh, Grant takes uh, just a little bit under 900 men, loses about 40% of that command. Uh, loses, uh, he has 38 officers, loses 22 of his officers. It's about a 60% casualty rate. Uh, Forbes finds that particularly distressing to lose uh, so many trained officers. But what's intriguing is, uh, even though uh, in magnitude very similar to Braddock's defeat, uh, Forbes never loses the will to conquer. Uh, in his writings, there's never any indication that all is lost, we're doomed, uh, we're defeated. Uh, you know, part of that is he's a, a pretty experienced lowlander Scot, and let's face it, you put a military column into Scotland, you're probably going to lose it. That's just what happens when you put an army into Scotland. Uh, Forbes is, is not happy, needless to say, but he is willing to accept the casualties and, and the losses that, that he sustained. Uh, the position of Loyal Hannah means that uh, the troops can recover fairly quickly. And most importantly, what Forbes does is he turns this tactical defeat into campaign and operational victory. Uh, the reason is, it's uh, September 14th, morning of September 14th is when, when Grant's debacle occurs. Uh, if you're a Native American uh, on campaign, you've now taken scalps, you've now garnered uh, war trophies, you've captured all sorts of plunder from the Highlanders, you've captured prisoners to take back home to, uh, to reinforce your family and your community. Uh, Everything you need to do on a summer campaign, uh, you've checked all those boxes now. And now it's time to go home. Uh, I always like to ask this, how many hunters do I have here from western uh, or central Pennsylvania? We've got a few hunters. What do we all do uh, on the Monday after Thanksgiving? All of us go out and we hunt the white-tailed deer. The Native Americans did basically the same thing. The fall hunt is a critical moment in the Native American uh, annual life cycle. They hunt in the fall. The animals are fattest. They're healthiest. They have the most meat on them. Uh, the pelts are in the best condition. Uh, they're in the rut, so they're easier typically to hunt. They're a little bit inattentive. And to the Native American, the fall hunt 
is how you feed and sustain your family and your clan and your tribe and your village through the winter. And it's critically important. So you've had a summer as a successful warrior. You've proven yourself as a warrior. Now you have to get your family through the real difficult times of winter. So the Indians basically abandoned Fort Duquesne for the winter and the fall hunt because it has to be done. If you don't do the fall hunt, your family is going to starve come about February or March. So uh, Forbes, who had never really intended to arrive before Fort Duquesne until, quote, the leaves came off the trees anyway, uh, is right on schedule. And uh, when Fort Duquesne is basically denuded of the garrison uh, on November 12th, there's a uh, brief nasty little action uh, uh, just west of uh, Loyhanna, uh, west of Fort Ligonier, uh, in which George Washington plays a uh, rather uh, unhappy uh, role. He almost gets killed in a friendly fire incident. Uh, but during that engagement, French prisoners are taken, and uh, John Forbes interrogates them, discovers the garrison at Duquesne is very weak, and uh, he will immediately move his army forward, and within two weeks, uh, Fort Duquesne is now in British hands. And uh, it's a really great example of how tactical defeat does not necessarily equate to operational or campaign defeat. Uh, John Forbes is able to transform uh, what could easily have been a campaign-crushing defeat into an opportunity that he then will exploit two months later. Dr. Weddle will now speak on Burgoyne's crushing defeat in the northern wilderness in 1777. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm going to change it up just slightly here, uh, maybe lighten things up slightly, because I a friend, just today, believe it or not, a friend of mine sent me, who, uh, over, she's over in the UK, she sent me a, uh, uh, a link to a program that the National Army Museum in London, the British Army Museum, is going to have coming up next week about how formidable the British Army was in the 18th century, virtually undefeated <laughs> in the 18th century. So I told her during the Q&A, I hope she's going to bring up some, uh, some things about tactical arrogance. Yeah. Um, so that should be interesting. I can't wait for the, uh, the report on that one. So uh, first of all, I just want to say I'm just really um, honored to be on the same stage as uh, David and Doug here. Um, but just to, um, you know, the, the 1777 campaign uh, was so interesting because it, it took place almost entirely in the, uh, in the wilderness. And we think of uh, terrain and weather and things like that as being neutral. I mean, both sides have to deal with the same terrain, weather, distances, all that stuff, right? But of course, you know, the British and their allies, and not necessarily their Indian allies, but their other allies, uh, are just not used to that. David uh, talked about that a little bit toward the end. Um, there's very little institutional memory as they go into the uh, campaigns in North America. Um, and in particular, when they start uh, conducting operations from Canada down into New York. Uh, and that, that particular summer, the summer of 1777, was extremely wet. Uh, it was very, it's always hot and humid in the summer in, uh, in New York, of course, but it was very, very wet. 
Uh, and so just things like um, just, just marching overland, marching down a road, and you come up to a creek, and the creek is, uh, is flooding, and they had to deal with that. And they, all the roads turned into quagmires. They had to deal with that all summer long. And, of course, that's when they're, that's when they're actually conducting this, uh, this particular campaign. Uh, so the weather, dealing with the weather. Uh, so that's a, that's a huge challenge. They're dealing with insects. You know, we don't think about stuff like that. They're dealing with uh, black flies and mosquitoes. I'm from Minnesota, so of course we call a mosquito our state bird. Um, <laughs> and it was probably about the same for these guys. And you you read and they didn't. Ha you know, these guys don't have experience with with that sort of thing. These are folks who came. In fact, the the regular soldiers, both the the Germans and the uh, British soldiers probably had less combat experience than the Americans that they're facing uh, during the uh, uh, during the Saratoga campaign. Um, this is this is a great uh, one. One British company surgeon wrote that the flies and mosquitoes have almost devoured us. Everyone has bumps on hands and face from their poisonous stings. Day and night we are tortured by insects. And then of course they also encounter the timber rattlesnake. Uh, which, of course, are you know common up there. I cannot describe how afraid, even terrified, I've been, I have been of them. The country around Skeensboro, which is present-day Whitehall, which is the very southern tip of uh, Lake Champlain, uh, swarms with rattlesnakes, the bite of which I believe is mortal. So these guys were dealing with things this is beyond their experiences. Uh, as, and, and then, of course, they have to also move and fight and do all the other things that a soldier has to do on campaign. Uh, David talked a little bit about distances. The distances are immense when you think about it. These are these are campaigns that take place over literally thousands of square miles. I mean, it's it's uh, 300 miles from the Saratoga battlefield down to where the commander in chief is, George Washington, down near Philadelphia. 300 miles, 280 miles from um, Canada to Fort Stanwix, one of the major uh, elements of the uh, the campaign in 1777. Over 200, well over 200 miles from Canada down to the Saratoga battlefield. So these are these are long distances that that these folks have to deal with. Um, interestingly, these these folks, especially the Europeans, were struck by the physical beauty of the area. You, you read a lot of accounts, uh, especially when they broke out of the wilderness at Fort Edward to see the Hudson River Valley, and they spoke about just the the incredible beauty. Uh, of the terrain, notwithstanding the rattle, rattlesnakes and mosquitoes and the black flies, um, but um, all of the all of this inexperience and the lack of institutional memory really fled in fed into this tactical arrogance that we've been talking about. And whether we call it arrogance or hubris or just you know the less pejorative overconfidence, certainly the British commanders had that. In particular, the the senior British commander in the, in the Saratoga campaign, John Burgoyne. Um, now here's a guy who served almost his entire career fighting on the continent. Yes, he was in the American Revolution at the very early period, but didn't have, I mean, he was around Boston, and, and then he returns back to London, and then he comes back to Canada, but um, uh, he's on campaign for just a short time in 1776, and so uh, he really doesn't run into the Americans. He doesn't have to deal with them very much. And he, too, is calling the Americans rabble and, uh, and really clearly had no respect for them. And then when he succeeds in capturing Fort Ticonderoga within a couple days, almost a bloodless victory, that's just going to feed into that overconfidence and hubris and, and arrogance. And that's going to cause him some problems. Um, 
Brigadier General Simon Fraser, probably Burgoyne's best combat commander, a guy that I would almost equate with a Benedict Arnold, kind of just you know really dynamic, soldiers loved him, um, great combat leader, wrote a couple days after, the only, um, unfortunately, the only thing we have from Simon Fraser on command because he, he died uh, at the Second Battle of Saratoga, uh, but he writes a letter to a friend back in England and he said, our general, Burgoyne, is really a fine, agreeable, manly fellow, but hates lines of resistance when they interrupt his projects, and they will occur here frequently. Talking about just campaigning in, in, in North America. So there's all those things, of course, and maybe we can, uh, if, if uh, you want to talk about it a little bit more, maybe in the Q&A, but also I'd like to bring it up. There's also arrogance at the, strate at the uh, operational and strategic air, uh, um, uh, levels as well. Uh, because I think there was a fundamental mis, uh, well, misunderstanding of how tough it was to operate and conduct military operations in North America. And that goes from the king to uh, Lord George Germain, who was Secretary of State for the colonies, and thus the, the civilian leader, who the senior civilian leader who was responsible for managing the war in North America. Um, uh, and Bur Burgoyne himself, uh, less General Howe, who was the commander in chief uh, in uh, North America minus Canada, uh, doesn't apply to him as much. But but these others, um, they're trying to do this this extremely complex plan, thinking they can pull it off very easily, well before uh, early fall. Uh, over these vast distances, uh, almost assuming that the Americans aren't even going to fight. Uh, that, that's almost the way it seems because they think it's going to be so easy. Um, and, and there's just so many assumptions that feed into this, this arrogance. Um, just, again, a total misunderstanding of what it's going to take. For instance, um, Germain will approve Burgoyne's plan to conduct, you know, have these converging columns come down from Canada and ultimately meeting at Albany and then conducting some unspecified operations after that. He also approves General Howe's plan to go to Philadelphia to try to draw out Washington, destroy Washington in a, in a major army, or a major a battle, rather. And uh, he sends Howe a follow-on message saying, oh, and by the way, once you finish that campaign, you need to go up and help Burgoyne and knock that stuff out by, by early fall. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's not going to happen. That's a total misunderstanding of what it takes to conduct military campaigns in North America. Howe knew that. As soon as he got that letter, he's, he wrote, quickly wrote a letter back to Germain and said, that ain't going to happen. Um, you know, I, it's going to take me a while to track down Washington, defeat him, and then, yeah, maybe I can go up and help him, but it's not going to happen by early fall. There's no way. Uh, so just that's just one of many examples. You get Burgoyne. Um, he thought he could get down to Albany with absolutely no problem, especially after Fort Ticonderoga. So, um, you know, there's all sorts of, of elements of not only tactical arrogance, but also that feeds into the strategic and, and operational arrogance as well. We now have about 20 minutes for a question and answer session. For those of you with a question, please raise your hand and a microphone to you. This enables all the members of the audience to hear your question clearly. Uh, and I'm supposed to stress that this is a recurring problem. <laughs> 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 Testing. Uh, folks, uh, 
sure if I, oh, there I am on. Uh, all right, we'll go ahead and get started here with the crowd. We see somebody right there in the center. Go ahead. How would you describe the French regular military in North America? After all, they did lose this. Yeah, that's that's a great question too. There, there's um, in terms of, of French military forces in in North America, you have two two different types. You have the French Canadian Marines that are part of the Naval Department, and they constitute basically the garrison forces in New France, from Louisiana all the way up to to Canada. And these are the forces that are the most uh, shall I say, Americanized. Um, they have um, cooperated with Native American allies. They, um, they are fighting usually as irregulars. Uh, the second contingent is uh, the, the French army regulars that, that are sent to North America beginning in 1755 when, when, when Braddock's expedition is also uh, sent across the Atlantic. And uh, interestingly, there, there are some uh, frictions between these French Canadian forces and the French army regulars. So in, in a kind of mirror way um, to, 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 the, to the, the types of um, tensions that we've, we've talked about thus far in the British context. Um, the French army, to, to answer your question, uh, I, I think that the French commander, the Marquis de Montcalm, uh, he, he does have a more um, conventional focus and um, has a lot of disdain for um, how the French Canadians have theretofore conducted operations. And so it, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic because it, again, really mirrors the types of imperial tensions that we see between the British regulars and the American provincials? It's a great question. All right, folks, before we move on to our next question here uh, on site, I'd like to remind everyone listening online, uh, if you go to the top of your screen uh, on the uh, live stream, you can click on the question and answer icon and just type your question right in there and I'll be able to see it and translate it over to our uh, wonderful panel tonight. But let's go ahead and we've got another uh, gentleman right there in the middle. Oh, lady, right there in the middle. Sorry about that. I'm a local Cumberland County, and, and something I learned at the Cumberland County Historical Society in the past was that General Forbes was so sick by the time they made it to Pittsburgh that they were carrying him on a sling between two horses. Have you ever heard that story? Well, yes, General uh, John Forbes, uh, his correspondence uh, beginning about 1757, starts complaining about a, an illness. Uh, disease seems to be uh, digestive, if you will, uh, in his stomach. Uh, and he uh, suffers a couple of incidents during the campaign, which basically prevents him from doing anything, puts him on his back completely. Uh, I had a very long and lengthy discussion uh, when I was working on my book with the uh, 
division surgeon of the 10th Mountain Division, who was a very accomplished uh, surgeon. We uh, exhaustively examined his lifestyle, uh, what we knew about his diet, uh, and what we could tell from the writings of, about his symptoms. And he said, well, Doug, uh, my uh, initial diagnosis would be that uh, John Forbes had stomach cancer. Sure. He said, but if uh, you have General Forbes report to me, uh, we can do a blood test and we'll know for sure within 48 hours. So the answer is we don't really know uh, what was actually wrong with him. Uh, it was a debilitating illness. Uh, he actually didn't ride a horse even on the campaign. He had a chariot, and he took a chariot as far forward, uh, certainly as far forward as, uh, as Carlisle here, probably as far forward as uh, Fort Loudon. And from then on, yeah, we actually had a uh, stretcher rigged up between two horses that he could ride in. Uh, even as sick as he was, however, he continued to actively and aggressively command the expedition. It's a real testimony to uh, human character and human strength, uh, human determination of will to achieve victory. Uh, Forbes literally killed himself in this campaign. He would return to Philadelphia. He would die in uh, March 1759 of his illness. Uh, and in fact, uh, he is buried in Christ's church in Philadelphia to this very day. All right, gentlemen, I do have a question coming in from the internet. Um, so can you speak about Braddock's team of, of advisors and officers? Is there evidence of dissent or disagreement with his tactics, or was the tactical arrogance widespread? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in a nutshell, yes, there was dissension in among Braddock and his, his officers. Um, there are hints of this that come out in the, the correspondence of that, that time period. Uh, there were some officers, uh, particularly Sir John St. Clair, who was, who was Braddock's uh, deputy quartermaster, um, who argued that, um, that, that the British should try to shore up their, their supply situation and wait for the, the rear division of the army under Colonel Thomas Dunbar to, to help close that distance of, again, 50 plus miles um, that, that had developed between the two columns. Um, St. Clair allegedly said, um, we shall know in a few days who, who the general's best advisors were, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, there was dissension, um, but it, it really had to do with, with Braddock's uh, tactic of this this coup de main, and he's he's rushing ahead, trying to to beat um, French reinforcements that, that he knows are coming down from from Canada. So he's trying to get to Fort Duquesne before they 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 show up, and um, he he almost succeeded, uh, but it it the dissension among Braddock and his officers that really explodes once Braddock is defeated, and of course, after he dies, then he, he is uh, fair game for all of these, uh, these armchair critics. Yeah, there, there's also a, uh, th that's such a great question, because um, 
similar thing happens in, in uh, the 1777 campaign because especially, you know, they have this great victory at Ticonderoga, unexpectedly easy victory, their first thing on the campaign. And then a day later, they have the Battle of Hubbardton, uh, the only battle that's fought in Vermont uh, during the American Revolution. And that battle is a short, sharp battle in which the British win, but the Americans do very well standing up to these British regulars and German regulars. <coughs> and especially you start seeing these young officers writing about, whoa, this isn't going to be as easy as we thought maybe. Um, you know, Burgoyne's been telling us this is going to be this is going to be, we're, we're just going to, it's just going to be a lark getting down to Albany, but these Americans fought pretty well. Uh, if we're going to be running into these guys all the way, it's going to be a lot more, a lot more difficult than we thought it was going to be. Uh, and, and you see, then it starts building, it starts getting into the, the more senior officers start grumbling. And as they get deeper and deeper into America, deeper and deeper into New York, um, that's going to start being a problem. And then especially becomes a problem after the Battle of the disaster of Bennington. It's also, this is another great question. It's interesting how these dynamics kind of snowball. Mm -hmm. uh, so in Braddock's case, part of the reason that the army, in a sense that they grow in their confidence because the French and the Indians do hardly anything in terms of, of resistance. Mm -hmm. they, they don't try to, to halt or delay the column in any any meaningful way. And so that, that reinforces in, in Braddock's mind and in the minds of, of officers this idea that the, the French just aren't going to show up. They understand that they're, they're going to be blown to smithereens as soon as we establish our siege artillery. And, uh, and that's why the Battle of the Monongahela comes as, as such a psychological shock because it is completely unexpected. Um, one officer interestingly described the, the mood of the army in this way. He said um, th there was this sense that all that was needed for the reduction of, of Fort Duquesne was, was General Braddock's presence. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and, and, and I always, uh, great, great topic of conversation is, you know, dissension and unity in an army and uh, how that influences successful combat actions. It's a, it's a very difficult question. Uh, both Forbes and, uh, Forbes and uh, Braddock are bedeviled by my very dear friend, Sir John St. Clair, who uh, Sir John, uh, Scottish Lord, uh, when uh, John Forbes hears that he's been appointed quartermaster to Braddock, he quote, calls him a mad sort of fool unquote. Uh, St. Clair is a, a unique individual, uh, very argumentative, uh, and he actually introduces a great amount of discord uh, into uh, both the, uh, the Braddock campaign and uh, attempts to introduce a great amount of discord into the Forbes campaign. Uh, Forbes quite masterfully uh, diffuses uh, that situation. In a, in a piece of absolutely genius uh, leadership in uh, handling Sir John St. Clair. But uh, it's a topic that we don't often discuss or study is unity, uh, unity and command, one of the key principles of warfare. Uh, 
and we often assume that the Army is, uh, all the horses are pulling together. Uh, when anybody who's worked with senior officers know that, quite frankly, none of the horses are, in fact, mm -hmm. pulling together. Uh, and uh, Sir John St. Clair uh, is one of the greatest uh, examples of uh, how discord can creep into, uh, into a campaign. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's have a big round of applause for our panel. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.